Chapter Twenty Four of The Dude Wrangler by Caroline Lockhart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter Twenty Four Hicks the Avenger. The remarkable change in Mr. Hicks' manner continued the next morning. It was so radical that no one could fail to observe it, and the comments were frequent, while Mrs. Stott crowed openly. From haughty independence he had become so anxious to please that he was almost servile, and his manner toward the wife of the rising young attorney, particularly, was that of a humble retainer fawning at the feet of royalty. During breakfast he stood at a respectful distance, speaking only when spoken to, and jumping to serve them. This attitude quickly dissipated the fear which he had inspired in the happy family, and by noon they were not only calling him Hicks, but Ellery. Then, this stage of familiarity having been passed in safety, Mr. Stock humorously dubbed him Cookie, and the name was adopted by everyone. Mrs. Butlong ventured to complain that there was too much shortening in the biscuit. This was a real test of the sincerity of his reformation since, if such a thing were possible, he had been even more touchy upon the subject of his cooking than his dignity. No one could doubt but that the change was genuine, when he not only received the criticism meekly, but actually thanked her for calling his attention to it. Thus encouraged, Mr. Apple declared that he wished he would not fry the ham to chips, and boil the daylights out of the coffee. Mr. Hicks bowed servilely, and replied that he would try to remember in future. Mrs. Stott took occasion to remark that his vegetables would be better for less seasoning and more cooking, and Miss Gasket thought his dried fruit would be improved by soaking overnight and additional sweetening. Mr. Hicks received these criticisms in a humility that was pathetic when compared with his former arrogance. He looked crushed as he stood with bowed head and drooping shoulders, as if his proud, untrammeled spirit had been suddenly broken. Miss Eister felt sorry for him, and asserted that she would not recall when she had enjoyed food so much and eaten so heartily. Indeed, she had been such a gourmand that she had gained a pound and six ounces, if the scales upon which she had been weighed in Prouty were accurate. Mr. Stott, however, who was in one of his waggish moods, undid all that she might have accomplished in the way of soothing Hicks' injured feelings, by inquiring facetiously if he would mind rolling him out a couple of pie-crusts to be tanned and made into bedroom slippers. Mr. Hicks laughed heartily along with the others, and only Wally caught the murderous glitter through his downcast lashes. It developed that the Yellowstone Park was a place with which Hicks was thoroughly familiar from having made several trips around the circle. He was not only acquainted with points of interest off the beaten track, passed unseen by the average tourist, but he suggested many original and diverting sports, like sliding down a snowbank in a frying pan, which would not have occurred to any of them. 
By the time the party had reached the Lake Hotel, they were consulting him like a Baedeker, and he answered every question, however foolish, with a patience and an affability that were most praiseworthy. Their manner toward him was a kind of patronizing camaraderie, while Mrs. Stott treated him with the gracious tolerance of a great lady unbending. A disbelief in the ability of the leopard to change its spots made Wallie skeptical regarding Hicks' altered disposition, yet he, yet he did his best to convince himself that he was wrong when Hicks went out and caught a trout from the Yellowstone Lake expressly for Mrs. Stott's supper. It was a beautiful fish as it lay on the platter, brown, crisp, and ornamented with lemon. Mr. Hicks offered it much as the head of John the Baptist might have been brought to Salome. "'Thank you, Hicks,' said Mrs. Stott, kindly. "'I hope you'll like it, ma'am,' he murmured, humbly. The mark of favor seemed to bear out Mrs. Stott's contention that inferiors should not be treated as equals in any circumstances. Now, with her fork in the fish, Mrs. Stott looked around the table and inquired graciously if she might not divide it with someone. Everyone politely declined except Mrs. Budlong, who looked at it so wistfully that Mrs. Stott lost no time in transferring it to her plate. She ate with gusto and declared, after tasting it, It is delicious, simply delicious. I never remember eating another with quite the same delicate flavor. I presume, addressing herself to Mr. Hicks, who was standing with arms akimbo, enjoying her enjoy it, it is due to something in the water? I presume so, he replied respectfully, and added, the trout in the Yellowstone Lake are said to be very nourishing. It was natural that Mrs. Stott should feel a little flattered by this evidence of partiality, even from a menial. Also, she noticed that Mrs. Budlong was following each mouthful with the eyes of a hungry bird-dog, so she could not refrain from saying further. It is such a delightful change from ham and bacon. I am not sure, she averred laughingly, that I shall not eat the head and fence, even. I wish I was in such favor, Mrs. Butlong declared enviously. Never mind, honey dumplin', said Mr. Budlong. I shall go out after supper and catch your breakfast. You ought to get a boatload, Hicks added quickly, if you find the right place. I saw them jumping by the million where I was walking before supper. Mr. Apple volunteered to conduct Mr. Budlong to the spot as soon as they were finished eating. Everyone who had fishing tackle decided to avail himself of this wonderful opportunity, and they all followed Mr. Apple, except Mr. and Mrs. Stott, who preferred to fish by themselves from the bridge over the Yellowstone River. They were the last to leave, but returned in not more than twenty minutes, Mr. Stott supporting his wife in what seemed to be a fainting condition. Wallie hastened forward to lend his assistance if necessary. "'Is she ill?' he inquired solicitously. Ill! She is sick at her stomach, 
and no wonder. He was plainly angry and appeared to direct his wrath at Wallie. While Wallie wondered, it did not seem a propitious moment to ask questions, and he would have turned away had Mr. Stott not said peremptorily, Wait a minute, I want to speak to you. Having laid Mrs. Stott, who was shuddering, on her blankets and administered a few drops of aromatic spirits of ammonia, he dropped the flap of her teepee and beckoned Wallie curtly. You come with me. Wallie could not do else than follow him, his wonder growing as he led the way to the camp kitchen where Mr. Hicks was engaged at the moment in the task which he referred to as pearl-diving. He did not appear surprised to see them in his domain. On the contrary, he seemed rather to be expecting them, for immediately he took his hands out of the dishwater, wiped them on the corner of his apron, and reaching for a convenient stick of stove-wood, laid it on the corner of the table with a certain significance in the action. "'Make yourself to home, gents,' he said hospitably, indicating the wagon-tongue and a cracker-box for seats, respectively. "'Anything in particular I can do for you?' He looked at Mr. Stott guilelessly. "'You can answer me a few questions,' Mr. Stott fixed a sternly accusing eye upon him. "'Hicks, was or was not that trout you gave my wife, wormy?' Mr. Hicks, who seemed to relish the situation, pursed his lips and considered. Finally, he asked in a tone which showed that he had pride in his legal knowledge. "'Will I, or will I not, incriminate myself by answering?' "'You probably will if I'm correct in my suspicions. I want the truth.' "'Then,' replied Mr. Hicks, while his hand slipped carelessly to the stick of stovewood if you force the issue i will say that i've seen a good many wormy trout come out of the yellowstone but that was the worst i ever met up with mr stott advanced belligerently and you dare boast of it i'm not boasting i'm just telling you replied mr hicks calmly an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's my motto, and your wife thought I wasn't good enough to eat at the table with her. You hear? Stott turned to Wallie furiously. He did it on purpose. I demand that you discharge this fellow. Mr. Hicks' fingers caressed the stovewood while he waited Wallie's answer. Wallie squirmed between the two of them. It was reprehensible, Mr. Stott. I am more distressed than I can tell you. I have no excuse to offer for Hicks' action. But the truth is, as he knows and has taken advantage of it, I cannot replace him, and it is impossible to get along without a cook with so large a party. You will then not discharge him? Stott demanded. I am helpless, Wallie reiterated. Hicks grinned triumphantly. In that case, Mr. Stott declared in a tone which implied that a tremendous upheaval of some kind would follow his decision, my wife and I will leave your party and continue through the park 
by motor. Wally felt that it was useless to argue with anyone so determined, so he made no effort to persuade Mr. Stott to remain, though the deflection of two more persons was a serious matter to him and Pinky. Without waiting to say good-bye to the others, the Stotts paid their bill and departed, walking so erect in their indignation as they started down the road toward the Lake Hotel that they seemed to lean backward. It was not yet dark when Mr. Stott, stepping briskly and carrying his Gladstone bag, raincoat, and umbrella in a jaunty manner, came into camp, announcing breezily that he had decided, upon reflection, not to bite off his nose despite his face. He declared that he would not let the likes of Ellery Hicks upset his plans for touring the Yellowstone, and while his wife refused to return, he meant to carry out his original intention. But the real reason for Mr. Stott's decision, as Wally suspected from the frequency with which he had discovered him sitting upon a log in secluded spots, counting his money, was that the hotel rates and motor fare were far higher than he had anticipated. Mrs. Stott's absence did not leave the gap which she had anticipated. In fact, after the first evening, her name was never mentioned, and Mr. Stott's marital ties rested so lightly upon him that a stranger would never have known they existed. He gravitated toward Miss Gasket with a promptitude, which gave rise to the suspicion that he had had his eye upon her, and Miss Gasket responded so enthusiastically that it was a matter for gossip. It was noted that she took to doing her hair up at night on wavers, and used her lipstick with greater frequency, and whereas she had vowed she meant never again to get in the saddle, she now rode with Mr. Stott daily. The ladies who had known Miss Gasket for twenty-five years, and nothing to her discredit, were not prepared to say that she was a hussy and a vampire without further evidence. But they admitted to each other, privately, that they always had felt there was something queer and not quite straightforward about Mattie. Miss Gasket, who looked like a returned missionary that had had a hard time of carrying the light into the dark places, seemed rather elated than depressed at the aspersions cast upon her character, and by the time they reached the paint-pots she was flaunting Mr. Stott shamelessly, calling him Harry before everybody, and in the evening sitting with him by the campfire on the same saddle-blanket. At Mammoth Hot Springs Mrs. Budlong showed her disapproval by refusing to speak to Miss Gasket and Miss Gasket replied by putting on a peekaboo blouse that was a scandal. But Mrs. Budlong herself was not in too high favor, since to the sin of gluttony she had added that of lying and been caught at it. It was a small matter, but, as Mrs. Apple declared indignantly, it is trifles that betray character, and Mrs. Budlong was treated with marked coldness by the ladies to whom she had prevaricated. It was known beyond the question of a doubt that Mrs. Budlong had purchased food and kept it in her teepee. Therefore, when asked for something to ward off a faint feeling before dinner, and she had denied having anything, they were outspoken in their resentment. 
There she stood and lied to our faces, Mrs. Apple declared to her husband afterward. While her mouth was shining, I could smell sardines on her, and a big cracker crumb was lying on her bosom. Indeed, it's a true saying they have in this country that to no people you must camp with them. I never would have thought that of Hannah Budlong. It was because of this incident and the strained relations which resulted from her perfidy that none of her erstwhile friends responded to her invitation to join her in a bath in a beaver dam of which Mr. Hicks told her when they camped early the next afternoon. Mrs. Budlong's phlegmatic body contained an adventurous spirit, and the delights of a bath in a beaver dam in the heart of a primeval forest appealed to her strongly. To Mr. Hicks, who sought her out purposely to tell her about it, she confided, Hicks, underneath my worldly exterior, I am a child of nature. I love the simple, the primitive. I would live as a wild thing if I could choose my environment. Mr. Hicks nodded sympathetically and understandingly and returned the confidence. I am convinced that I was a fawn when the world was young. There are times when I feel the stirrings of my wild nature. Mrs. Budlong regarded him attentively. She never had thought of him as a fawn, but now she noticed that his ears were peculiar. Nobody could have been more obliging and interesting than Mr. Hicks as he guided her to the beaver dam and explained its construction. It had long since been abandoned by the industrious animals that had built it, but their work had been so well done that it was in as good condition as when they had left it. There was nothing to fear from beavers. Anyway, Hicks assured her, he never had known a beaver to attack anybody. In this isolated spot, she was as safe from intrusion as if she were in her own bathroom, and after tramping down a spot in the brush for her to stand on, he went away, declaring that he was sure she would have an experience she always would remember. Left alone, Mrs. Budlong felt of the water. It was, as Hicks had said, even warmer than tepid from standing, an ideal temperature. The brush grew high around the pond, formed by the backwater, and made a perfect shelter. No fear of prying eyes need disturb her. Then a daring thought came to her which made her black eyes sparkle. Suppose she did not wear any bathing suit. What an adventure to relate to her intimate friends when she returned to Mount Chunk, Pennsylvania. It laid hold of her imaginative mind, and the result was that Mrs. Budlong hung her suit on a bush and went in en natural. She waded in cautiously, for the bottom was soft and oozy, and there were little patches of green floating on the surface that she did not so much like the looks of. Otherwise, conditions were perfect, and Mrs. Budlong submerged like a submarine when she reached the middle of it. She came up and stood looking at the sky above her, enjoying the feeling of the sunshine on her skin and the soft, warm breeze that caressed her. She smiled at an interested blue jay, then submerged again, deeper, and the tide rose so that the water lapped bushes and pebbles that had not been wet all summer. Her smile grew wider as she thought 
what the others were missing, and was considering how much she dared embellish the adventure without being detected, when, suddenly, a look of horror came to her face and stayed there, while screams that sounded more like the screeches of a lynx or mountain lion than those of a human being scared the blue jay and brought those in camp up standing piercing hair-raising unnatural as they were mr budlong recognized them my wife help murder hicks where is she find a weapon and come with us i gotta get supper hicks replied heartlessly mr apple mr stott and old mr penrose dashed into their tents and dashed out carrying firearms that had been sealed by the park officials as is customary while mr budlong in his frenzy snatched a pair of scissors from miss eyster and headed the posse which expected to pursue the murderer he was not a murderer yet however for mrs budlong's screams had not diminished in volume although it was feared that worse than death might already have befallen her her shrieks guided them like a lighthouse siren so they lost no time in taking wrong directions but at that it was a considerable distance and mr budlong in spite of the agonized thoughts which goaded him forward was so handicapped by his asthma that he gradually fell to the rear of the rescue party mr stott was then in the lead with mr apple a close second until the latter who was wearing bedroom slippers stumped his toes against a rock with such force that he believed them broken he dropped down immediately with the pain of it and sat weaving to and fro clasping his foot to his breast while the others passed him mr stott called that help was arriving as he crashed through the brush in the vicinity of the beaver dam to his astonishment mrs budlong shrieked don't come and went on screaming when he reached the pond he stopped short and stood there and old mr penrose joined him an instant later mr apple alternately limping and hopping yet covering ground with surprising rapidity reached the others ahead of mr budlong who staggering with exhaustion huge drops on his pallid face and wheezing like an old accordion all but fainted when he saw the wife of his bosom mrs budlong looking like a corn-fed aphrodite stood in the middle of the pool with her fat white back wet and glistening flecked with brown particles that resembled decayed vegetation what's the matter honey dumplin cried mr budlong shocked and bewildered for answer, Mrs. Budlong screamed the harder. I know, piped up Mr. Apple. She's covered with leeches, bloodsuckers, and can't get em off. I got em once swimming in stagnant water. When he spoke, he called attention to the fact of his presence and that of Mr. Stott and old Mr. Penrose, instead of being grateful for the information and for the assistance the others had expected to render mr budlong turned on them all furiously get out of here you peeping toms and spying libertines haven't you any shame about you he raised the scissors so threateningly that as soon as they recovered from their astonishment they retreated but at that their haste was not sufficient to appease an outraged husband mr budlong 
picked up a pebble and threw it with such a sure aim that it bounced between Mr. Stott's shoulder blades. When he had picked off the bloodsuckers that were battening on Mrs. Budlong, the two returned to camp and lost no time in serving notice on Wally that they were leaving by the first passing conveyance if they had to buy it. Whether or not Mr. Hicks had known of the leeches was a matter for much discussion, and opinion was about equally divided as to his innocence. He disclaimed all knowledge of them, however, and went about with the air of one cruelly maligned. His martyr-like pose was not convincing to Wally, who could not rid himself of the suspicion that the incident had been planned, though Pinky contended that he did not believe Hicks was deep enough to think of anything like that. Anyhow, he's cost us three dudes, said Wally, which remark was sufficient to set Pinky figuring with a stick. Three head of dudes at five dollars a day for, say, eleven days is, say, they're gone, and that's all there is to it. The thing for us to do is to see that no more leave. Wally interrupted, practically. "'I'm not worrying about them,' Pinky replied, confidently. "'If we can just hold that cook, we've got to humor him till we get through this trip. Then after he's paid off, I aim to work him over and leave him for somebody to drag out.' But as if to make amends for the loss he had caused his employers, Hicks Manor grew increasingly saccharine and he redoubled his efforts to provide entertainment for the guests. By the time they arrived at the Canyon Hotel, Wally was questioning his suspicions of Hicks and felt inclined to believe that he had been hasty in his judgment. He was undoubtedly an asset, for the entire party hung on his words and relied upon him to see that they missed nothing of interest. Mr. Stott was indebted to him for an experience which relegated the Florida hoot-owl to the background, though the thrill of the adventure was so intermingled with anguish that it was impossible to tell where one left off and the other began. Sliding down the snow-covered side of a mountain in a frying-pan was fraught with all the sensations Hicks had described and some he had omitted. When they had reached the particular spot which he had recommended for the sport, in lieu of a frying-pan, Hicks gave Mr. Stott a well-worn gold-pan that he had found somewhere. Starting at the top with a party as spectators, Mr. Stott shot down the side like the proverbial bullet, but midway his whoops of ecstasy changed to cries of acute distress, owing to the fact that the friction wore a hole through the pan to the size of a dollar, and Mr. Stott, unable to stop his unique toboggan or endure the torture longer turned over and finished the trip on his stomach mr stott's eyes often rested upon hicks afterward with a questioning look in them but the cook's solicitude had been so genuine that cynical as his legal training had made him he was obliged to think that it was purely an accident which might not happen one time in a million no point in the park had been anticipated more than the camp at the canyon, where Mr. Hicks averred that the bears came in swarms to regale themselves upon the hotel garbage. 
Their tour thus far had been a disappointment in that the wild animals, with which they had been informed the park teemed, were nowhere in evidence. A deer had crossed the road ahead of them, and they had gazed at a band of elk through Mr. Penrose's field glasses, but otherwise they had seen nothing that they could not have seen in Pennsylvania. Mr. Hicks' tales of the bears had aroused their interest to such a point that as soon as the campsite was selected, they loaded their cameras and Kodaks and set off immediately to get pictures while the light was favorable. It chanced to be one of the days, however, when the bears had no taste for garbage, and although they waited until nearly supper-time, not a bear put in its appearance. Mr. Penrose, in particular, was disappointed and vexed about it, and while it was unreasonable to hold Hicks in any way accountable for their absence, he could not refrain from saying disagreeably, "'I think you have exaggerated this bear business, Hicks. I have no doubt that a bear or two may come down occasionally. I have the word of others for it. But as for droves of bears, swarms, I think you have overstated.' Mr. Hicks cringed under the criticism, and admitted with a conciliatory whine in his voice that was rather sickening. Perhaps I did enlarge a little, Mr. Penrose. Possibly I was over-anxious to be interesting. I apologize sincerely if I have misled and disappointed you. I hope, however, that you will yet have the opportunity of seeing at least one before we leave here. No such luck, Mr. Penrose growled at him. I haven't any idea that I'll see even the tracks. It's a good idea to cut into everything you're told in this country and then divide it. Mr. Penrose was so hard on Hicks that Mr. Apple interposed quickly. Do they ever come around at night, Cookie? So I have been informed, Mr. Hicks replied conservatively. Pinky was about to say that bears travel more by night than in daytime when Mr. Apple declared that he intended to sleep in the sleeping bag he had brought with him, but which Mrs. Apple had not permitted him to use because she felt nervous alone in her teepee. Mrs. Apple protested against Mr. Apple, thus recklessly exposing himself to danger, but Mr. Apple was mulish in the matter. If by chance one should come into camp, I would have a good look at him. I may never have another such opportunity. If you want to take your life in your hands, well and good. So, after supper, Mr. Apple unrolled his sleeping bag and spread it on a level spot not far from the supply wagon. Then he kissed Mrs. Apple, who turned her cheek to him and buttoned himself into the bag. The talk of bears had made Aunt Lizzie Philbrick so nervous that as an extra precaution she pinned the flap of her tent down securely with a row of safety pins, and Mr. Stott not only slept in more of his clothes than usual, but put a pair of brass knuckles under his pillow. These brass knuckles had been presented to Mr. Stott by a grateful client, for whom he had obtained damages from a street railway company for injuries received through being ejected from a saloon six months prior to the date upon which he had fallen off the car's step. 
brass knuckles and a convenient length of lead pipe were favorite weapons with the clientele which gave to the waiting-room of mr stott's law office an odor reminiscent of a wayfarer's lodging-house the night was a dark one so dark in fact that old mr penrose felt some little hesitation when it came bedtime over going off to sleep by himself in the brush where owing to his unfortunate habit of snoring so loud as to be beyond anything human they now placed his teepee there was not a glimmer of moonlight or starlight to guide him as he went stumbling and crashing through the brush to his rag residence his thoughts were not so much of four-footed visitors as of footpads and the ease with which they could attack him and get away with his grandfather's watch which he was wearing out in the open mr apple was enjoying the novelty tremendously though he was a little too warm for comfort in his fleece-lined bag but after the last candle had been extinguished he called to his wife cheerily are you all right dearie mrs apple was not to be so easily propitiated and did not answer so he called again this is great simply great i wish you were here with me only mr apple and his maker knew that he screwed up his cheek and winked at the fabrication sleep came quickly to the tired tourists and soon there was no sound save the distant tinkle of the bell on one of the horses and the faint rumble of mr penrose's slumbers it was eleven o'clock or thereabouts and the clouds had rifted letting through the starlight when dark forms began to lumber from the surrounding woods and pad around the camp sniffing at various objects and breathing heavily there were bears of all sizes and ages ranging from yearlings to grandfathers whose birthdays were lost in antiquity mr apple who was a light sleeper and the first to discover them would have sworn on a monument of bibles that there were at least fifty of them the size of mastodons palpitating in his sleeping bag in the midst of them he may be excused for exaggeration although exactly there were only eight of them the cold sweat broke out on mr apple and he thought that surely the thumping of his heart must attract their attention in such mortal terror as he never had experienced or imagined he quaked while he speculated as to whether the bear that first discovered him would disembowel him with one stroke of his mighty paw and leave him or would scrunch his head between his paws and sit down and eat on him but once the bears had located the supply wagon they went about their business like trained burglars standing on their hind legs they crowded about it tearing open sacks scattering food tossing things hither and thither jostling each other and grunting when they found something to their liking their grunting and quarreling finally awakened hicks and mcgonagall who started up in their blankets yelling their whoops aroused everybody except old mr penrose who was sleeping with his deaf ear uppermost and would not have heard a big bertha mr stott slipped on his brass knuckles and stood with his head out of the tent opening adding his shouts to those of hicks and mcgonagall who by now were hurling such missiles as they could lay their hands on instead of having hysterics as might have been expected aunt lizzie philbrick astonished herself and others by standing out in the open 
with her petticoat over her nightgown, prepared to give battle with the heel of her slipper to the first bear that attacked her. It was not until Mr. Hicks got hold of two wash basins and used them as symbols that the bears paid any attention. But this sound, added to the pandemonium of screaming women, finally frightened them. Then, scattering in all directions, they started back to the shadows. Suddenly, Mr. Apple let out such a cry as seemed that it must not only split his throat, but rend the very heavens. Small wonder, a cinnamon bear weighing in the neighborhood of 800 pounds planted its left hind foot in the pit of his stomach as it went galloping away to the timber. In the brush, where Mr. Penrose had been sleeping tranquilly, other things were happening. In the midst of his slumbers, a dream in which he thought he was being dragged to the fire like a calf for branding, came to him. The dream grew so real that it awakened him. He received a swift and unpleasant impression that he was moving. Then he was startled to find that he was not only moving, but moving so rapidly that the canvas bottom of his tent was scraping on the rocks and brush over which it traveled. Mr. Penrose was enraged instantly. At best, he had little patience with practical jokers and none at all with one who had the impudence to awaken him. He called out angrily. The tent stopped moving, and there was quiet. Mr. Penrose, who had raised himself on his elbow, laid down and was about to begin where he had left off when his domicile resumed its journey. Now, thoroughly aroused, he sprang up and tore at the flap fastenings. This is going to stop right here, he cried furiously. I do not appreciate this odious western humor. You have chosen the wrong person to play your jokes on. He reached for the pointed fish pole, which was lying in its case in the bottom of the tent, and stepped through the opening. A burly figure in a big overcoat stood in the deep shadow, confronting him. Mr. Penrose was barefooted, and his soles were tender, but he advanced far enough to bring the pole down with a thwack upon the head of the intruder. Woof! Woof! The answer raised his hair and galvanized his whiskers. Woof! Woof! A great paw fanned the air. He could feel the wind from it plainly as it reached out to cuff him, and the claws on the end of it tore the front of the flannel shirt in which he slept to ribbons. Woof! Woof! And then a roar that reverberated through the temper. Mr. Penrose swore afterward that the hot breath of the brute was in his face, but the statement is open to question, since, at the first woof, he had fallen into his tent backward. No one dreamed of the adventure Mr. Penrose was having until he appeared among them with his shirt bosom in shreds and trembling like an aspen. In one hand he carried a sizable chunk of bacon. This, he cried, brandishing it, is what I found tied to my teepee. The explanation was obvious. Somebody had baited his tent for bear on purpose, and since there was no way of obtaining evidence against the culprit, Mr. Penrose, in his unreasoning rage, accused everybody. "'Ever since I came, you have all had a pick on me,' he glared at them. "'You needn't think you're so smart. I haven't seen it.' Everyone was so surprised at the accusation 
that they could only stare, speechless, at him. With his white beard, rags, and barefooted, Mr. Penrose looked like the Count of Monte Cristo, telling the world what he was going to do to it, as he added, waving the bacon. I'm going home tomorrow, to Delaware, back to my peach orchard. And if anyone of you ever say you know me, much less speak to me, I shall deny it. I'm done with a whole caboodle of you. Protestations were useless, and efforts to dissuade him from his purpose of leaving. The next morning he packed his bag and started down the road without saying good-bye to anyone. His departure reduced the party to half its original number, and that was bad enough, but when by lunchtime Mr. Apple had developed a soreness which led him to believe he was injured internally and should consult a physician, the situation became infinitely worse to Wally and Pinky. As a matter of course, they expected his wife to accompany him but what they had not known was that Miss Gasket had been put in Mrs. Apple's charge by her parents, and, in the light of her indiscreet conduct with Mr. Stott, it was deemed best that she should return with them. It was a terrible disappointment to Miss Gasket, who cried bitterly and, in an unguarded moment, told her age, approximately, sobbing that it was preposterous that one of her years should not be permitted to finish a trip which she was so enjoying. End of Part 1 Chapter 24